And Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote the letter, but he had received a visitation from a number of Christians from Corinth who had uh, kind of given the Paul, Paul the skinny on what's happening at the church, and they also brought some questions that they wanted uh, him to answer. And so he pens 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, he, he's grieved and concerned by some of what he hears is going on in the church, and so he writes in part to correct, but he also instructs, he answers their questions, and of course, as always, as Paul always does, encourages them in, in the glorious pursuit of Jesus Christ. Today we are in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And in today's text, Paul is responding to some Christians who are engaging in sexually immoral behavior and are arguing that it's perfectly fine for them to do as a Christian. Now, I as a pastor, I've encountered many Christians who are engaging in sexually immoral behavior. But very, very rarely do I get a Christian who says, and there's nothing wrong with it. More, usually they say, Mike, I know what the Bible says. It just doesn't work for me. Or I'm trying, but I just constantly get overwhelmed with the, the temptation of the moment. But here we have Christians who are uh, engaging in sexually immoral behavior and they're doing it publicly and with their head held high, and they are making theological arguments that it's perfectly fine. And Paul recognizes if this kind of thinking takes hold in the church, it's going to derail a ton of people spiritually, and it will undermine the purity and the power of the church. And so he takes time in our text today to directly address it. Corinth was a licentious city. Uh, there were two temples in Corinth, the temple to the god Apollo and the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And uh, we see there the, the temple of Apollo, and up on the hill is the temple to Aphrodite. And the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, it is said there were 1,000 temple prostitutes. 1,000. This, this was an immoral city. Uh, there was a... Uh, a slogan in Paul's day, to be a Corinthian woman meant that you were a loose woman. And this is the culture, this sexually charged, uh, licentious city. This is the culture in which the Christian church of Corinth dwells. This is the culture that many of those Corinthian Christians grew up in. Many of them were fully participating in prior to coming to Christ, and even some were still participating in and actually saying it's perfectly fine as a Christian. And so we, we learn a lot from Paul's response. And frankly, uh, I think America today is a pretty sexually charged culture, right? And we need to hear God's perspective on uh, his purpose and the power of sex so that we take it uh, seriously and deal with it appropriately. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm looking today at verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So those Christians engaged in sexual immorality were justifying their behavior with two basic arguments. And the first we see in the slogan, all things are lawful for me. You know, Paul probably himself uttered this slogan. And it's true in its correct context. It is true that we are no longer under the Jewish law code with its regulations about uh, keeping the Sabbath and, and its dietary laws, and even its sexual uh, morality laws. And, and we are free as Christians to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit as we seek to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We no longer honor God by just sort of uh, checking off uh, the law. So to an extent, that is a true statement in the proper context, but these Christians are using this as a license to sin. Hey, I've been set free from the law, the Jewish law. I've been set free to do whatever I want to do. Now, they were coupling that argument with this second argument found in the slogan, the food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Once again, this might have been a slogan Paul uh, introduced in Corinth as he argued that, yes, in the Jewish law, we weren't allowed to eat bacon, but now we can. Bacon's just a food, goes in your belly, does not, uh, it does not defile you spiritually. And these Christians were saying, okay, and extrapolating it out and saying, well, sex is just another bodily hunger, right? And so if you are hungry, feel free to eat bacon. If you're frisky, Feel free to visit a prostitute. It's just a bodily appetite, and it doesn't. Now, here's the thing. They're buying into a dualistic worldview in which they're arguing the body does not impact the spirit. What you do in the body does not impact you spiritually. So you can eat bacon, and it's not going to impact you spiritually you can visit a prostitute, and it's not going to impact you spiritually. God isn't interested in your body. It's going to die. He's, he's interested in your spirit. God wants to have a spiritual relationship with you. God wants to transform your, the spiritual side, the non-material side. That's where you have your relationship with God. That's what he's interested in, in transforming 
not your body. So it doesn't matter what you do with the body. It doesn't impact you. Spirit, you see the argument? It's a theological argument. And Paul realizes this, this is very, very dangerous. We are not a dichotomist. We are one integrated. And, and what we do in the body does matter. Focus on the Family website has a section, Frequently Asked Questions. And they have there a, a question from a young woman. I don't know if it's an actual letter that was written to them or whether it's a composite from uh, questions, but here's what we read. I am a young woman who is trying to lead a chaste life, but my boyfriend is always pressuring me. He says that my concerns about sexual morality are just an expression of an unhealthy fear, that in trying to live by God's standards, I'm basically rejecting the beauties of creation and avoiding the joys of life in the flesh as God intended it. Now, I'm finding it harder and harder to answer him when he talks this way. Can you help me? Is Christian sexual morality unhealthy or unnatural? How many of us have encountered the argument that says, hey, uh, your sexual appetite is like your physical appetite. It's, it's, very, it's natural. And, and actually, what's unnatural is to, what's the word? repress it, right? Repress it. And so the argument is, hey, your sexual energy is like a river, and, uh, and if you try to dam it up, eventually that river is going to just come up over the, over the dam and wreak destruction downstream. I read a, a, an article online this week arguing that a lot of male violence can be attributed to their sexual repression. It's nuts. Whereas Christians, here's what we say. God's sexual boundaries act like riverbanks. Yes, we have our, our sexual energy is like this giant. For me, it's a giant, powerful river. And, and I need God's riverbanks to, to keep it flowing in the right direction and keep it, uh, keep it healthy, right? And what happens when rivers overflow their banks? And then, then they flood things and destroy things. So let's look at Paul's response. All things are lawful for me, these Corinthian Christians are saying. And Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't say, no, 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 that's not right. Because it is right in its context. But Paul says you've got to balance that glorious truth with true of, two other truths. Is it helpful and I will not be dominated by anything. Now, I should say this. Uh, at this point in New Testament history, Christians don't have the New Testament. And so Paul has demonstrated that the, the, the Old Testament law has been abrogated in Christ or fulfilled in Christ. And so Christians truly were trying to um, determine on all fronts uh, what, what is appropriate in the New Covenant era, era? We do have the New Testament, and the apostles have gone through many aspects of life and said, we'll tell you what is 
the, the, pro, the appropriate way to love God and love others as ourselves. And so uh, we can go to the New Testament and a whole lot of behavior is, is articulated for us as either being good for us or not good for us. But there's still a lot of life in which the New Testament does not directly address it and, and we have to ask the question, is this behavior good for me? It, will it help me love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as myself or will it hinder me? And secondly, I won't be dominated by anything. If I participate in this, is there any chance that I'm going to get hooked? Is there any chance that it's going to get control over, over my life? Is there any chance that it's going to make it more difficult for me to, uh, to surrender myself 100% to the lordship of Jesus Christ? All things are lawful for me. Yeah, but is it helpful and is there any you know, chance that it's going to dominate you? Jesus Christ... He paid the penalty of death on the cross to set us free, but he set us free for a purpose. The purpose is so that we can serve God and so that we can hand over to the Lord control of our lives and no longer be subject to the rule of sin in our lives. We're freed for a glorious purpose, not to go sinning and not to hand over the power of our lives to uh, the flesh or other people. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul's writing to another group of Christians who seem to also be uh, getting it wrong. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, in this passage, uh, Paul uh, applies these principles to, uh, to sex. But uh, we can apply it you know, way beyond just sex. So, for example, think about um, buying on credit. Nothing in the New Testament that specifically says we can't buy on, on credit. It, there's not a, a law against it. And yet we can ask the question, is it helpful? And is there any chance it will dominate me? A lot of Christians are enslaved to debt. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Seminary, writes, The greatest enemy to sending people to the mission field other than Satan himself is debt. Ben Sawatsky, associate personnel director of the EV Free Church, writes, 95% or more of those who apply as potential uh, candidates for church work are paying off student loans, and the average student loan debt is $37,172. Johnny Moore of Liberty University writes, what mission agencies have told us over and over is that the number one barrier to getting people to live and work overseas as missionary is debt. They call debt the black hole. And Luke Womack, founder of the GoFund, writes, thousands of U.S. college graduates desire to willingly place themselves on the front lines of the mission field for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tragically, many of them will never go because of the barrier created by their student debt. So you see how, hey, I'm free. Well, yeah, but 
balance that with some other good thinking? Is it beneficial for me? Is there any chance it's going to uh, get control over my life and make it harder for me to uh, follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in serving God and others? Well, now to the second argument. What I do in the body doesn't impact me spiritually. Paul says, that is absolutely false. The body, verse 13, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You hear what Paul's saying there? God isn't interested in just having a relationship with the spiritual part of you. He wants a relationship with the body part of you. You are an integrated, whole person. The body is meant for the Lord, a relationship with the Lord, and the Lord for a relationship with the body. So this idea that what I do in the body doesn't have any impact on me spiritually is, is, is not biblical. It's not Christian theology. God wants to have a relationship with you that includes a relationship with your body. And then in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. Now this truth, I encourage you to ponder this truth this week. You, if you are a Christian, you are the temple. Your body is the temple of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And what does a temple do? A temple is a place where we worship God. A temple is a place where we communion with God. A temple is a place where we call other people to have a relationship with God. And we do that all in the body. So verse 20, Paul says, So glorify God in your body. <laughs> this is such a, a liberating and ennobling truth. Contrary to a secular culture which says what we do doesn't really matter in the big cosmic scheme of things, right? We're just products of random evolutionary processes, and so there's, you don't, there's no cosmic significance to your life. Paul says, actually, what you do matters so much that you have the ability to glorify the creator by the way you act. You know, I'm looking around this morning at the people who come, come early to set up. They're glorifying God in the body. All of you who are here, the very act that you said, I'm going to get up Sunday morning and I'm going to come to church so that I can worship the Lord and learn how to love Him more and follow Him, that's a bodily act that says God is important and you bring glory to God. All of those in the children's realm who are, uh, who are serving our children. That's a body act. They're glorifying the Lord in their body. In fact, how else do we glorify God? Through the body. And this... this Truth that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit has unbelievable uh, implications. If I serve the Lord with my body, if I glorify Him with my body, then boy, I need to take care of my body, right? 
I should probably get enough sleep. I should probably eat healthy. I should probably exercise so that I have full energy so that I can fully glorify the Lord in my body. Well, this truth that what we do in the body matters and has a spiritual impact on our lives is never more true than in the area of sex. And that's what Paul talks about here. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's from Genesis. The two will become one flesh. So Paul's saying, listen, those of you who are arguing that sex is just a a bodily appetite and it doesn't have any impact on you spiritually, he's saying that is absolutely false. When you join yourself sexually with another person, the two become one flesh. There is a uniting of your persons that is somewhat mysterious, but it's a spiritual uniting, a physical uniting, an emotional uniting. What we do sexually in the body has an unbelievably powerful impact upon us in all areas, including our spirits. And Paul says, look, as a Christian, you are united right now with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your spirit has been united with with the body of Christ. And so how are you to take, you know, how does it make any sense for you to take uh, your spirit united with Christ and then go unite with a prostitute? That's mixing the holy and the unholy. And he says, never, never would we do this. The fact is, and you know this, I, I just point out what you know. You watch TV, uh, every th- the songs that we listen to, what culture says, culture just says, hey, uh, you have sexual desires, you have sexual needs, right? And uh, sex is, as long as, you're, as long as everybody's consenting, as long as you're not trying to harm anybody, uh, it's, a, it's a healthy way to self-explore. It's a healthy way to get to know people, right? Test out relationships. Uh, and they take it super casually. That's what, we're, that's what we are being fed in our media for sure. And Paul says, listen, don't forget God's purpose for sex is to unite two people. And taken out of the context of marriage, what is sexual morality? Sexual morality, Christian sexual morality, is sex within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual immorality is sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It's that simple. And Paul says sex has unbelievable power. It impacts us at such a deep level. It's such a uniting force. That, that to take it outside the context of marriage is destructive, and it's spiritually destructive. It has, so sex has unbelievable power, and outside the context of marriage, it has unbelievably destructive power. So what's his conclusion? 
Flee sexual immorality, verse 18. In light of its power, in light of its potentially destructive power, flee it. Like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife when she grabbed a hold of him and tried to take him to her bed. And, and he just fled and left his, left his uh, jacket. Will, will you trust God's testimony that sex outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman is destructive spiritually? Will you resolve in your heart this morning, I'm going to flee sexual immorality. And what does that look like for you? Maybe you're visiting prostitutes. Maybe you're having an affair. Maybe you're reading romance novels that are inflaming your uh, unhealthy fantasies. Maybe you're watching uh, inappropriate movies, television. Maybe fleeing sexual immorality means you need to change the kind of music you listen to. Maybe fleeing sexual immorality means you need to marry the girl. What does free, uh, fleeing sexual immorality look like for you? Is it putting some uh, pretty hardcore controls on your internet use? Does it mean going to get some help? Joining a, a, a Christian-based sex help group? We live in a sexually charged culture. Probably not that much. When you consider the internet... Not that much different from Corinth. Everything is available to us. Will we flee? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, sex is not uh, any uh, worse in the eyes of God but it, do, it is more destructive. There is something uniquely destructive about sexual sin. And you might know this firsthand. The purpose of this message today is not to shame. It's not to guilt. It's to prevent. I'm preaching this sermon today. I'm thinking about today onward. May today onward we flee sexual immorality so that we can avoid the negative consequences of it. But what do we do about the past? Well, let me remind you of two verses that Pastor James read last week. Just the verses that came right before our text, actually starting in 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is. And such were some of you. See, Paul's, Paul is under no illusions. <laughs> he's looking out at his congregation, at least in his mind, and he's thinking, 
I know what you guys have done. But he doesn't try to shame them. What does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has no interest in guilt-tripping you for the past. You know what God does about your past? He washes you. He sanctifies you. He justifies you. And then he instructs you and says, Hey, from today forward, in the power of my Holy Spirit, live in freedom. Let's pray.